The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 192 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we are diving into a fantastic conversation with the really wonderful author, Douglas Young. Douglas is not only an essayist and uh, a poet, he writes uh, what he likes to call dramedy novels. And today we're discussing his debut novel, Deep in the Forest, which is a riveting tale of a potential alien encounter. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Who knows what it is? It's a mystery. And it's got lots of heart. It's got family stories, uh, romance, a whole bunch of genres mixed into it. And it's it sounds fantastic. You're going to hear all about that today. Plus a fantastic reading. A really uh, riveting reading. I really enjoyed listening to him. He really pulls you in. Whenever we, uh, Whenever you listen to the interview, you're going to hear his energy that he has for the process, how well, how much he really enjoys it. Uh, we're going to be talking about everything that went into creating this book and how long it took him, because this is an idea he's had for a long time. And, uh, you know, and some of his really unique looks at things like shyness being a ha- handicap and conquering your fear, your fears to live the fullest. Lots of really good stuff in this interview, and you're going to really enjoy it. So stay tuned. That interview with Douglas and his uh, sample chapter is coming up here in just a few moments. Meanwhile, thank you everyone who reached out and has been sharing my my post last week, the uh, the episode where I came on. I did a reading for my new book, Bandit Rising. Uh, the pre-order is available, and it's got a. I, I'm just blown away with all the uh, outreach I've had for that and the way everybody has shared it. Thank you very much for all of you who did or reached out to me. Um, I'm pretty happy about that. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still hung up on uh, doing my own edits because every time I think, okay, this is it, I'm done, I think of something before I can send it off to my beta readers. I think of something like, oh yeah, this would be good. This would be good too. And I'm like telling my beta readers, hang on just a minute. I, let me just make one more change. And, oh my goodness, I've got to let it go. I've got to let it go so I can get it to them. And have you know get their feedback because otherwise I'm gonna just keep nitpicking at it and I've got a little over a month away from the release date for that, uh, but uh, it just you know it's it's that time in a writer's life that that moment when we're, all the work is finally coming together and uh, you know it's all leading up to release date and so uh, you know the nerves are everywhere I'm just really scrambling in the midst of all that I've had a lot of uh, personal issues in the background with, uh, you know, as I've been telling you about that family member who's been sick and that's been, uh, uh, we're doing everything we can with that. And, uh, we're, we're staying hopeful and we're praying and thank you again to all of you who, who have reached out and, uh, sent your love uh, for that. And I've passed that on to this family member and let them know that there's a lot of people, uh, helping out you know, a lot of people, keeping my family in their prayers and uh you know, bless your heart everyone I, I really appreciate that you know and also in this past week i got the rest of my writer's block coffee order came in 
And that's been fantastic to get to try some of these coffees. Uh, we are an affiliate of the company, meaning if you go through my links or use my uh, coupon code, which is sample chapter, by the way, then you get 10% off. And I also get a portion that goes right towards helping the show. So if you are a coffee lover and a writer, what's better than writer's block coffee? Three delicious flavors, the signature blend writer's block, which is pretty darn good. I really like that. There's the Deadline Dark. That's their dark brew. And um, honestly, my favorite, Bourbon Barrel Aged Coffee, uh, where they age the coffee in a, a bourbon barrel for, I think it's 30 days, and it soaks in that. And I tell you, the smell of it is just incredible. And to my surprise, that's my wife's favorite so far as well. She really enjoyed that. So it's a fantastic company. Um, they have some other little things you can order on there at the website as well so make sure you click that link in the show notes so you, it'll take you straight on over there to there and uh, don't forget to also use that coupon code sample chapter to get 10 percent off your order now as for sponsors uh, that would be my favorite writing software scrivener they've been with us for a few years now and uh, i've been using the software for even longer I use Scrivener with all of my writing now, and it's really helped me out with this new book because it's part of a series. So I've got my Bible on the left-hand pane, all the chapters. I'm moving things around, and let me tell you, I had a lot of run-on sentences <laughs> and a lot of chapters that kind of blended together at the end of this book. And so I ended up having to split up and move around a lot of chapters, and Scrivener made it so, so easy. Check out this advertisement and find out how you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. All right, thank you once again to Scrivener. Uh, I can't say enough words, enough good stuff about them, and uh, cannot wait to uh, dive into my next book. I uh, also want to thank my podcast friends, Pop Goes the Culture Network, home to about half a dozen other shows, all of them pop culture related, all of them fantastic, and all of them well worth your time. Click that link in the show notes to find the list of them. Uh, get on over to that website and you can see all the different shows. Hi, Ruby. <laughs> Ruby's out here with me. Come here, Ruby. Come here. Hey, you going to say hi, everybody? Are you saying hi to the world? Come here. I don't know what's got her worked up. Uh, but yeah, click that link in the show notes and get on over to Pop Goes the Culture Network. I also want—I also want to say thank you to Project Inter Project Project Entertainment Network, home to about home to about thirty different shows of a wide variety. <laughs> check out this advert. 
<laughs> Check out this advertisement for one of those fantastic shows. <laughs> it's Bizong, the weird and wacky fiction podcast. With me, your host, Mr. Frank. Every Monday, we're talking to everyone who's anyone writing weird and wacky fiction. So if you enjoy reading funny and strange books, or you enjoy writing funny and strange books, join us on Bazong each week to learn along with Mr. Frank. Bazong every Monday, a part of the Project Entertainment Network. All right, everyone, that's about enough of this. Uh, no more talking for me. Let's get on over to our interview with retired professor and Georgia native Douglas Young. Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome back to another exciting episode. This week, we are heading down to Georgia. We're going to be having a chat with retired professor, uh, essayist, and novelist uh, Douglas Young about his first book, and uh, one I cannot wait to dive into because this has been getting some great attention, and uh, the the book looks amazing, and uh, I cannot wait to talk about him. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Mr. Young. Thank you so very much, Jason. I am honored to be here. And this is really exciting. Uh, I really appreciate your interest in the book. <laughs> well, it's it's a fantastic looking book, and it's a it's one of those concepts that makes you go, oh, I I, I need to find out what's happening here. So you got a great hook to it. Well, I really appreciate it. I was thrilled with the front book cover that the publisher put together, and I really think that. It's an exciting and engrossing, uh, really fascinating and often quite funny uh, story. Uh, I think it's a somewhat unique novel in that it doesn't neatly fit into any one genre. It's really a, a collection of, of many genres rolled into one. And I'm just thrilled uh, that the reaction to the book has been unanimously positive. I mean, it's already gotten uh, 18 uh, reviews on Amazon and they're all raves. Uh, five reviews on Barnes and Noble, they're all raves. And uh, people have just been uh, extremely receptive to it. And uh, so I'm, I'm just elated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good feeling on, uh, on Amazon. You crush that uh... That secret threshold of 15 reviews and now Amazon starts to pay attention to you, to your book ah. and, and says, oh, hey, yes, this book is for real. So that's <laughs> that's fantastic that uh, it's already because the book came out in July. So it's already it's already uh, accrued these uh, reviews. That's fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm very blessed. So grateful. <laughs> well, now you were a uh, political science teacher at uh, in North Georgia. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I was a, a political science professor who often taught a lot of history classes for 33 and a half years. Uh, I taught from 1987 to 1999 at Gordon College in Barnesville, Georgia, about 45, 50 miles south of Atlanta. And then uh, from 1999 to the end of 2020, uh, I taught political science and some history uh, at the what was initially until 2013, uh, Gainesville State College, 
And then since 2013, we've been the Gainesville campus of the University of North Georgia. Okay. Also, while I was at uh, UNG, I advised a couple of uh, multiple award-winning student clubs, uh, the Politically Incorrect Club and the Chess Club. Nerds unite! <laughs> oh, that's great. My uh, my youngest son, he would love that. He's been in Chess Club in high school uh, and junior high, actually, for a few years. I, I realized after about a year of it, I realized, okay, yep, I can no longer just school him on chess he he knows the moves now and <laughs> knows a lot more than i do <laughs> and he can now defeat his daddy i bet oh yes yes he beats me pretty handily uh now so yeah we haven't played a game in a while but he's been focused now on his robotics classes ah, so. <laughs> well i think chess is a wonderful game it really sharpens our rational thinking and especially if we can discipline ourselves to try to think two or three moves in advance. I think that really helps facilitate critical thinking. Uh, and it's just so much fun. Um, one of the uh, loveliest aspects of the chess club I found was how uh, it brought so many students from so very many different backgrounds together uh, in friendship and, and camaraderie playing chess. People who uh, outside of chess probably would have never met each other. And uh, everyone got along beautifully. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, in all this time while you were teaching, were you were you writing in secret? Kind of, you know, the, the classic thing, writing in the closet? Or uh, was this something that you had always been open about wanting to do? I have been writing essays for newspapers and magazines and websites um, for several decades. Mm. Um, and then uh, I started writing uh, poems for publication mm, about 15 years or so ago. And, um, but in terms of uh, novels and short stories, uh, they are much more recent for me. Um, when I was in high school in ninth or 10th grade, uh, that's when I really fell in love with literature, especially American literature. And I, began to nurture a dream of one day becoming a novelist myself. But I'd never had the confidence to do that. Uh, I'd never even had the guts to, to write a short story outside of you know, very short ones, I guess, in elementary school. Um, and uh, so I, I got focused on my career in academia. Uh, but in recent years, I got to thinking, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And if I'm ever going to become a novelist, now is the time I ought to start not just thinking about it, but, but you know, acting on it, actually starting to write a novel. Mm -hmm. And so in the summer of 2017, uh, I had about eight weeks off uh, between semesters, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to finally write a novel. And Jason, I didn't even know if I could write a short story. <laughs> uh, but uh, for probably decades, I had had this idea uh, being tossed around in my head uh, whenever I had some free time or I just you know, was just walking. I had this idea, what if somebody encountered what he thought might be a UFO? Uh, what, what would be the, the after effect of that? I mean, I've always been fascinated by UFOs 
Um, but in, in almost all the UFO literature I've read or, or documentaries I've seen about UFOs, the material was always focused on the actual alleged experience. Mm-hmm. Almost never was there any follow-up as to, well, how did this event, uh, how did this significant experience impact the rest of uh, the observer's life? And so I, I just started writing about uh, a young man having a bizarre experience he couldn't explain with what he thought might be a UFO, but he wasn't certain about that, and how he would process all of that, how this event would impact the rest of his life, and how would the rest of his community treat him differently. And so with that in mind, I started writing, and I'll tell you, uh, what I had dreaded might be a really difficult, even emotionally wrenching experience turned into the most enjoyable, creative endeavor of my life. I went into this uh, endeavor uh, thinking of what Ernest Hemingway had written. One of my favorite writers, when Hemingway wrote, oh, writing is easy. You just sit at the typewriter and bleed. And bleed, yep. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this will be terrible. But it was just joyful. Uh, As much as I love writing essays and poems, there are rules that I have to obey. Um, With my essays, they have to be less than 800 words uh, for a newspaper to print them, and they have to be very rational. I have to uh, have arguments, and I have to have them well-reasoned and well-organized, and when I write poems, at least the way I write them, Uh, They have to rhyme, and they have to have a certain rhythm, and I like to have the same number of syllables uh, in back-to-back lines, um, and I write in in four-line stanzas. Uh, But the beauty of writing a novel or short story is, other than basic rules of punctuation, there are no rules. It's just (laughs) complete freeform. And so it was just a uniquely thrilling creative experience for me to sit at the computer and to just let my fingers uh, on the keyboard just follow my imagination. And I realized really quickly that this was going to be a lot more than a short story, that really uh, I should develop this into a full-length novel. And gosh, I kid you not, even though I had almost two months off and I could have just slept late, Man, I found I didn't even need to turn on my alarm clock. I was waking up on my own earlier and earlier and racing to the office on campus. And I was staying later and later. Man, I would write 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And sometimes I would write as many as 12 or 13 pages a day. And it was just uh, so exciting. Uh, I loved it. And um, I found that uh, the best way for me to write was uh, to just uh, write as much new material as I could, as fast as I could, and and worry about most of the editing later. And so Mm -hmm. what I would typically do is write maybe two or three days in a row new material. And then uh, for the next couple of days, I would go through it all and edit. And initially, I didn't even have an outline. I just, again, just let my fingers on the keyboard follow uh, my imagination. Uh, But then uh, when my mind, my imagination was going faster than my fingers could keep up with it, 
Then I would sort of map out the rest of the novel uh, by you know uh, chapters, you know chapter headings. Well, you know this is the chapter where this will happen or that will happen, and uh, it, it was just a joy. I, I loved it, and um, I, I did not write it to be uh, in any one genre. Um, to me, uh, to do that is to really constipate your story, to, to just narrowly define it. And I don't think life is like that. I think a, a, a real life, a full life uh, is a melding of lots of different genres. I mean, if we're going to be honest, I mean, we have drama, comedy, romance, suspense, uh, there's religion, there's excitement, uh, there's all kinds of stuff, family dynamics, friendship. And so I wanted this story to encompass all of that. And I think it did. I think it does. Oh, my goodness. There is so much there, uh, <laughs> so much there to unpack. But I love your enthusiasm and the energy you bring to the writing process. And oh, yeah, I, I, that that uh, ah, I'm not sure how else to describe it other than that high that you get from from writing and, and yes. uh, the discovery writing, like what you're doing is such a great feeling. Um, and and I, I love it whenever I can tap into that, when I, when I've hit that vein, so to speak, uh, <laughs> to continue this very odd uh, <laughs> thing that I've, I've set up here. Uh, it, and you know, just, for me, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, it just, it's such a euphoric experience uh, whenever yes. it starts pouring out like this. I agree. And to me, writing has not been the least bit lonely. I've loved it. Uh, mm -hmm. To me, I get to create and dive into and relish and, and just soak up and enjoy my own world. And I'm always writing uh, to my audience as well. And I like to imagine it'll be a big audience. And so I haven't felt lonely at all. Um, it really has been uh, a genuinely creative high uh, to create something original. Um, it, it's just, uh, for me, it's a really uniquely thrilling experience. And I'm just uh, so elated and honored and touched and, and deeply blessed and grateful to be able to, to share it with, uh, with others and uh, that, that people have enjoyed it so much that I've gotten so much positive feedback has just been a blessing that uh, I, I had never really seriously imagined uh, would come true. And so it's just, uh, uh, this has been the, the happiest year of my life. And um, um, I'm just delighted that the story has um, been so relatable to so many people that people have really uh, taken to it. And um, so I, I, I hope that it will continue uh, to spread in popularity and acceptance. Well, that's the uh, that's the icing on the cake. It, it sounds like you wrote for yourself because you had the question that you were already internally considering, and then posing that to yourself, and then putting your answers out on the page, and then it comes together as a, in book form, and then you put it out there, and and it sounds like people are enjoying your thought process, having that same idea of like, yeah, what would it happen, and let's see what happens here with with uh, your characters. Um, we got Elton Peabody, 
uh, who uh, goes through this. And uh, that's a, it's a great feeling to uh, tap into something that uh, apparently is, is uh, really latching on to an audience and uh, definitely congratulations. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I do really appreciate that. I think as another interviewer uh, suggested, uh, by luck, I, I cannot say that I planned it this way at all, but as fortune would have it, um, UFOs are, have been back in the news big time <laughs> yes. this year with the release in uh, late June of the Pentagon report in which for the first time uh, in, in American history, uh, the U.S. military has acknowledged that there are lots of UFOs, um, the Pentagon is certainly not saying these are little alien green men manning them, but um, there are uh, aerial phenomena that uh, our fighter jets have been following and filming and, and, and they're doing things that defy the laws of physics, at least as we're, uh, as we understand them. And so um, there has been a, a whole lot more publicity about UFOs uh, in 2021 uh, than has been the case in probably many years. Uh, so that was really a, a stroke of luck. But I really want to believe, and I know I'm a little biased, but I do believe that uh, the story of Deep in the Forest is something that uh, I think a great many people can relate to. I mean, as you pointed out, Elton Peabody is the protagonist, and uh, he is a 35-year-old high school history teacher in the present day in a small uh, southern town. And uh, he goes home from school um, late one Friday afternoon, early evening. And uh, he uh, takes his dog uh, into his backyard. And uh, he notices as it's getting dark, there's a strange uh, white light, a, a bright glow deep in the forest behind his backyard. And his dog, General Longstreet, and uh, seemingly all the other dogs in the neighborhood are just barking hysterically uh, towards this light. And Elton finds himself sort of fixated, sort of mesmerized by this light. Mm -hmm. And so against his dog's will, uh, once he gets his dog inside, uh, he takes the flashlight and he dares to go out uh, into that forest to, to see well, what is that bright light. And uh, when he finally encounters it up close in a clearing, oh my goodness, he's just enveloped by the brightest, whitest uh, light and, and the loudest humming sound he's ever encountered. And uh, he panics and, and he blacks out. And uh, when he awakes, his younger brother, uh, Beauregard, who is the uh, local county sheriff and other deputies and, and observers, who've been uh, following uh, uh, reports of UFOs all over town, uh, they, they rescue him and they find that he's totally unharmed, but he's badly shaken. And so for the rest of the novel, I've just described chapter one, for the rest <laughs> of the novel, uh, Elton uh, is trying to figure out, well, what did he encounter? Was it a genuine alien UFO from outer space? Or uh, was it a bizarre U.S. military experiment? Was it a, uh, a, a strange prank? Uh, was it a, 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 some kind of a religious experience a la uh, the wheels of Ezekiel? Were these angels? 
Um, or did Elton have some bizarre hallucination? Or did he have some kind of a mental breakdown? Because as the reader learns, Elton has had some mental problems in the past. And so for the rest of the novel, Elton is on the one hand trying to figure out what he experienced, but also he's wondering why of all the, the UFOs that were reported around the county that night, why was I the one person of the 20,000 people in town who had a, a really up close and personal encounter with something strange? You know, why me? And Elton is a religious person. And so he's wondering, gosh, was, is God, did God try to send me some sign? If so, what was it? Am I too thick to get it? What's, what's going on? And of course, he's also in the midst of dealing with all this, he's having to face the fact that he's been against his will thrust into the public spotlight uh, as that UFO guy. And you can imagine his concern as a, a 35 year old high school history teacher, you know, uh, regarding how his students will, uh, will, will treat him. And so he's kind of dreading his first day back at school or the children going to just laugh at him. So he's uh, working very hard to, to you know, get back his life, so to speak, uh, while he's also under pressure to talk with reporters and, and he's sort of a hero to some, but he's seen as a, uh, you know, kind of freaky to others. Um, so he's got a lot to deal with. Uh, but the story is so much more than just Elton's UFOs experience and the fallout from it. Um, you see a lot of family dynamics in the story, and there's a sheriff's election as Elton's younger brother is running for re-election, and Elton doesn't want uh, his UFO story to detract from his brother's campaign, uh, and there are accusations that his brother may not be investigating the UFOs uh, as much as he should be out of concern for his brother. There's also a lot of high school dynamics going on, but I think this is a story uh, concerning high school that is very different from us because this is a story about high school as seen from the perspective of a young teacher. Uh, there's also a lot of friendship. Elton finds out who his real friends are uh, in the midst of this increased stress. And ultimately, uh, there's a lot of uh, romance before the story ends. Um, and in the midst of all of this, and there's a lot of family dynamics uh, between Elton and his parents. Uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, I think if there is one dominant theme of the novel that I really hope readers will pick up on, it is that it is critical if we really want to lead a full, uh, satisfying, uh, and, and uh, fulfilling life, it is really critical that we face and conquer our fears. Elton begins the story uh, as this very, sometimes even painfully shy, uh, awkward uh, teacher. And uh, even though he was arguably quite brave to go into the woods to face this bright light, uh, Elton realizes that if he's ever going to move on with his life, he has to face his fears. He needs to go back to that clearing in the forest. He needs to uh, stop hesitating. He needs to uh, face his detractors head on. He needs to face the press and, and, 
uh, be interviewed about what he's experienced. And he ultimately realizes if he ever really wants uh, to have a, a, a real girlfriend, he needs to be more bold on the dating front. He needs to ask people out. And I think that shyness is a great curse. I know in our culture, uh, we say that, oh, isn't it cute? He or she is shy. Well, as someone who's battled shyness in his own life, um, I think shyness is a great handicap. It's a terrible burden to bear, especially for anyone who has any ambition. And so I think that uh, Elton learns that uh, it's okay for some people to laugh at you, for some people to make fun of you, to ridicule you. Uh, you need to be true to yourself and uh, you need to take chances. You need to, to do what it takes to uh, meet your goals. And, and being shy is not going to enable you to meet your goals. And something that he also learns through the intervention of his pastor is that we don't have to figure everything out in this life. Uh, this life is full of, indeed, it's arguably to a great extent defined by ambiguity, by mystery. And um, if, if we knew everything, we'd be God, uh, but we, we don't, and that's okay. We don't have to know everything. And so Elton learns that uh, there's a whole lot more to life than just leading a very cocooned, safe existence, teaching uh, in your local high school where you were a student not too many years before, in your small town, not too far from your family. Elton learns that to really grow and mature and to achieve our full potential, we've got to reach beyond our safety zone. You know, I think now, uh, in light of the last year and a half with all this panic about COVID, um, now it strikes me that so often uh, I hear people say, oh, be safe, stay safe. And I'm all for people um, you know, avoiding unnecessary dangerous risk. I want everybody to wear a seatbelt and to obey the speed laws. And, and you know, I don't want anyone to be reckless. But I think that now we're making the opposite mistake. Now we're in danger as a culture, uh, America in 2021, we're in danger of becoming neurotically fixated on, on safety. Uh, uh, we're, we're becoming obsessive compulsive about avoiding risk. And I love what uh, my guru, Dennis Prager says, you can lead a safe life, or you can lead a full life, but you cannot lead both. It's mm. one or the other. And yeah. I think yeah. that if we're going to be true to our great American heritage as a, uh, a, a proud, yeoman, independent, and free, self-sufficient people, uh, we have to try to lead a full life. And that means that we can't always be safe. And certainly if we want to lead a fulfilling, happy, contented life, we've got to uh, reach beyond ourselves. We have to take risks. We have not, again, don't take suicidal, dangerous risks. But uh, other than those, yes, be bold. You know, you know, try to hit a home run. Uh, don't just bunt through life. Um, and so I, I hope that 
this story conveys that. And based on the uh, so far overwhelmingly positive reaction, I, I think that people are uh, taking some of these lessons from the book. And I'm, I'm just elated with that. Well, I, I agree with you completely. And, and I love the idea of, you know, swallow the lump on your throat, uh, gird yourself up and take that risk, whether it's uh, asking somebody on the date or even as simple as, okay, I'm going to write that book. I'm going to do it now and yes. I'm going to put it out there. And just like you have done and, and, and all for the better too. This is uh, this is fantastic. And so many great little uh, lessons throughout the book. And I think that's uh, clearly that's what's adding to its uh, popularity that it's got in there. Cause it's not just a straightforward um, was it aliens or not? Yes or no. It's family, it's romance. It's so many little genres and stories and side things. Um, it's real life being uh, being put in there how, how much everything we do affects those around us and and uh i think that uh, that takes a special talent to see that and to convey it in a story like you've done oh well thank you so much i i think that robert kennedy put it so well when he said talking about how we're all so interconnected he said if 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 one person throws a rock in a pond there's a wonderful ripple effect and this novel, Deep in the Forest, is not a science fiction story. Yes, in the first of about 20 chapters, uh, there is arguably some science fiction, but it's really, uh, I would say, a, a dramedy. I mean, it's a drama, a comedy. Yes, there's arguably some science fiction, uh, but there's a lot of family dynamics, romance, high school, small town, uh, genre stuff, uh, Southern stuff. There's a lot to play with because I think life is so complicated. Life is so interconnected. Nobody can be uh, simply stereotyped. I mean, we're all complex creatures. God made us all that way. And that's part of our beauty, a big part of our beauty. Mm -hmm. And I, I think back to uh, what Mark Twain wrote, and I'm having to paraphrase here. Uh, forgive me, please. But Twain wrote, 20 years from now, you're going to regret far more the things you did not do than those you did. And I think Woody Allen put it so well uh, in one of his movies uh, when uh, he had a character say, the saddest thing in life is a missed opportunity. And I can tell you as someone who is now 59, uh, and, and I'm someone who has a lot of regrets. Uh, I mean, professionally, I've been very blessed. But um, when I look back over my life, um, when I look at my regrets, every single one of my regrets is a missed opportunity. Not telling a dying relative uh, that I loved her because I thought at the time, oh, this could be awkward, uh, uncomfortable. And, and of course, she's been gone for decades and, and I can never do that. Uh, and it's a little late if I'm standing at her grave telling her that. Um, you know, I have regrets about not uh, traveling more when I was younger. When I was younger, when I was in my teens and 20s, uh, death was not an emotional reality to me. Uh, intellectually, I, of course, knew that we would all die. But in my 
life experience, uh, all the deaths uh, of anybody I had known had always been of old people. And yes, it may have been quite sad, uh, but it was never a tragedy. Uh, death was, was just not really real emotionally because I'd never known anybody young to die. Well, suddenly in my late 20s, uh, two of my elementary school friends uh, died of cancer, including my first grade sweetheart. And man, Jason, that was a one-two emotional gut punch to me, even though I had not seen either Missy uh, or Courtney in years, suddenly death became an emotionally deeply felt reality. And I realized, oh my God, death is real. And man, Missy and Courtney never did anything to deserve their cancer. I, if they could die of cancer at 28, I could too. I might even be hit by a bus this afternoon. And so I made a deliberate, conscious decision Never again, nunca mas, will I put off anything until tomorrow that I can do today. And so starting in my late 20s, for the last 30 years now, I have done light years more traveling and risk-taking and experimenting uh, and really living than I ever did when I was really young in my teens and 20s. Because when I was so young, I had this notion, oh, well, New York will always be in New York. You know, Europe will always be there. I, I can always go. Well, now I realize, no, uh, you never know what's going to happen. And uh, so many things in life, uh, opportunities come only once. I, I know in America, we like to say, oh, today's the first day of the rest of your life and it's never too late. Well, <laughs> sometimes it is too late. And uh, that's, I, I think that, when you look at the, the people who are really broken, the people who are really sad and even depressed, I think my take is that uh, so many of them uh, never really remotely fulfilled their potential, whether it was their uh, creative potential, their professional potential, their relationship potential, whatever. And they become embittered by that. And so um, I, something that I, tried to uh, impart to my students was how, man, you need to take advantage of all of your opportunities now. Professional, creative, romantic, travel, whatever it is that excites you, that really makes life worth living. Go for it now and don't worry what other people think. Don't worry if you fail. I mean, you can only learn what you really want to do in life, what you really need by failing at a bunch of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember a, a wise old gentleman told me that uh, as far as romance goes, uh, you can't possibly know uh, what you uh, want, much less what you really need romantically, unless you've had at least five serious romantic relationships. I remember I told that to one gal I taught one time and she said, oh no, I can't have my heart broken five times. Oh no. So I, I never told that to any other student after that, but in any event. So I, I just think that I hope that this story really can excite people to live life to the absolute fullest. Uh, I mean, I as a Christian, I want to believe and I do believe that there is a heaven that this life 
is not the, not the end. Uh, but this is the only life that that I know we've got, and so I want to live it, um, uh, you know, at, at, at full maximum speed, and and but wear that seatbelt. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh! Well said. Well, um, so so what are you working on now? I know you're you're uh, deep into a second book. Is this a sequel or is it something new? Uh, yes, sir. I am working on a second novel. Um, I'll tell you, it's funny. Um, like I said, I wrote the first draft of Deep in the Forest in the summer of 2017, and then every so many months, uh, when I would have a little free time. I would bring it out and I would reread it, I'd, re I'd edit it again. And then as I got to thinking, man, you know, I, I really think this is pretty good. Um, I started to share it with, with friends and, and get their feedback. And as they liked it and, and, and you know, pointed out mistakes I'd made and, and gave me advice and all, as, as the book was getting better and better, um, I, I decided to get super serious about it and started to look for a publisher. And then I, I found a publisher last summer um, and you know, went through more editing. Well, what happened was, um, uh, like I said, I retired at the end of last December, in December of 2020. And so I no longer had classes to teach or committee meetings to attend or anything like that. So I had a lot more free time. And I frankly got so impatient <laughs> with uh, the publisher in not bringing out uh, the first novel faster that I took advantage of the extra free time and wrote a second novel earlier this year. <laughs> and um, then uh, uh, in the summer on July 19th, to be exact, the first novel came out. And so for the last six or seven weeks, I've been uh you know, neck deep in, in uh, promoting the book, in giving interviews and uh, reaching people online, et cetera, uh, setting up book signings. Um, but uh, lately I've, I've gotten back just in the last week, I've gotten back to uh, uh, editing the second novel some more. So my hope is, uh, and I've already started to shop the second novel around some publishers. My hope is that um, the second novel uh, will come out at some point next year. And um, to more directly answer your question, um, it is uh, a novel that, uh, like the first, takes place in the present day, uh, small town American South. Uh, it is another dramedy, but it is not a sequel. Um, uh, it is um, a book that is frankly more ambitious than the first novel. It's significantly longer. It has a lot more characters and it's called Due South. And it explores a, a small Southern town called Due South. And whereas the first novel, Deep in the Forest has one major character that most all the action revolves around. The second novel has three major characters. And the second novel, uh, concerns romance overwhelmingly. It's, it's overwhelmingly uh, sort of a romantic uh, comedy. But uh, the, the second novel has, I think, um, more character development. Um, and the second novel is a lot funnier th than the first. Um, and 
uh, it's interesting. Uh, whereas the first novel, uh, I think is, I think by most any uh, anybody's lights would probably be rated G. I mean, uh, and I will readily admit I wrote the first novel uh, in such a way, even though I didn't censor myself, but I, I, the first novel, Deep in the Forest, has no profanity, smoking, drinking, drugs, sex, or violence. And I will confess, I wanted my 88-year-old daddy and my 87-year-old mama to be able to read it and enjoy it. <laughs> um, and But um, it's even though it doesn't have any sex or violence, it's still a lot of fun. Well, the second novel, Due South, while it's probably 95% G-rated, uh, the second novel, being about romance, uh, does have, uh, well, how shall I put it? Uh, whereas the first novel is rated uh, G, uh, the second novel, uh, most of the second novel might be rated PG-13. Well, maybe a, a few few pages might be R-rated, but um, I, I, so the second novel is, is um, more, I think more people, I think even more people will be able to relate to the second novel because there is no possible UFO element. The second novel is something that um, virtually everybody I think can relate to who's ever um, been in a romantic relationship or, or tried to be in one or who's ever been in love. Um, and the second novel has, uh, as I said, a lot more comedy. I mean, there's a lot of humor in the first novel, but I think the second uh, has even more. And I'm delighted to report that as much fun as I had writing the first, uh, I've enjoyed the second even more. I think with the second, um, I had a lot more confidence. Um, and uh, with the second, um, I was really enjoying making myself laugh. And so I'm, I'm really well, I'm, I'm really excited still about the first novel. I'm also getting uh, super excited about the second as well. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, getting that first book done is like getting the monkey off your back. And uh, right. like, oh, I can I can do this. And it's a completely different experience to get into your second book and, and kind of start to discover other aspects that uh, prior to that during the first book we're always kind of we're just hyper focused on uh this one this one this one i gotta just work focus on this and then it's, it's a different experience so yeah but that's great right. i'm glad that's working out for you though and it's funny when i wrote the first one i was not aware of any style uh, unique to, to my storytelling i mean i had never written a fictional story before of, of any uh, real length. Um, I just wanted to convey my ideas and, and the story of my mind as, as quickly and as well as I could. Well, in writing, well, let me backtrack. In, in editing the, the first novel so many times, uh, in editing that manuscript again, 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 over time, I started to pick up a certain rhythm and I started to recognize uh, certain traits to my prose. And in the second novel, especially, um, I think one of the reasons why it's been even more fun to write is because I am now more aware of my particular style of writing. And so the aspects of it that I most enjoy, I've really tried to emphasize all the more. Um, I guess it's the poet in me that uh, likes to have some of my prose 
have a, a, a rhyming quality to it. And I, I love uh, alliteration uh, without it being a distraction. Um, and so uh, that's been fun. And um, when I also, uh, before I sat down to write the second novel, um, I had sort of a, a, a file of all kinds of sayings, words, potential character names, uh, little anecdotes, humorous items that I wanted, that I was just saving, um, that I wanted to use eventually in some novel. And so it was a real joy to be able to insert them uh, into uh, the second novel, provided that, that everything fit, uh, that it was, you know, it was a good, a good meld. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, the second novel has been an even more uh, joyful experience than the first. And I, I look forward, God willing, to many more. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, Dennis, uh, is there someplace uh, fans can find and follow you online? Uh, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm just listed as Douglas Young. And um, also they can find uh, The Deep in the Forest uh, novel page uh, on Facebook at uh, Deep in the Forest. Uh, there's also a, a Deep in the Forest page on Instagram, um, but I check Facebook a whole lot more. Um, people are welcome to email me if they like. I uh, was blessed to get to keep my old uh, University of North Georgia email address, uh, which is Young at ung.edu. Douglas.young at ung.edu. And I would be delighted, especially to hear from any readers uh, of Deep in the Forest. I would love to get your uh, take on it. In fact, uh, everybody who I um, uh, send information to about the book, I ask them, hey, if you do read the book, please let me know what you think. And it's, it's always fascinating to get different takes on the book, how people related more to this character or that character and what they uh, thought were the main lessons of the book uh, or what most, you know, what did they most enjoy about it? Um, you know, that, that helps me. Uh, and I find that really uh, intriguing. Absolutely. All right. Well, Douglas, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. This has been fantastic hearing your story and the process and, all about this this uh, first wonderful book of yours and uh, i look forward to uh, grabbing a copy for myself and then uh, of course following your career thank you very very much i'm honored to be here i'm so touched uh, that you would ask me to appear on your podcast and do i have your blessing to please uh, post it on on my facebook page oh absolutely yes uh, whenever this is ready i will make sure to send you a link and of course everybody listening as you know, uh, I will also have the links for his Facebook page and the uh, email and where to find the book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, in the show notes. So whenever you're done listening, you can just click that link right there and you're uh, right there with uh, Mr. Young and his books. Thank you very, very much. And let me say, I'm so excited. Uh, whereas uh, Deep in the Forest was initially only available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, I checked this past week, and now it's also available on a Target, a Target's uh, website online, as well as uh, Speedy Hen, which I think is uh, British, 
um, and even something called Bokus, B-O-K-U-S, which oh. is a, a website, I believe, from Sweden. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. You can buy the, the novel in something uh, whose abbreviation is uh, K-R. I don't know if that means crowns. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I'll have to look that up myself. <laughs> the novel is in English. Although hopefully one day it'll be translated into other languages. I'd be thrilled. Oh, that would be thrilling. So, all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, time for me to step aside with my coffee uh, or well, actually today I've got ice water being a good boy. I'm uh, going to step aside with my ice water and listen along with you to our guest, Douglas Young with Deep in the Forest. Chapter one. Driving home from work late on a Friday afternoon was usually one of the happiest times of the week for 35-year-old Elton Peabody. The nervous tapping of his left foot aside, he was proud of working harder and longer than any other teacher at the high school, and he enjoyed reviewing both the week's successes and lessons learned as he made the 15-minute trip home. How he relished his small town's many tall oak trees and red, pink, and purple azaleas already in bloom. This third week in March had been unusually good since he judged his lectures to have been especially strong and the discussions lively and well-reasoned. His Western civilization students seemed particularly taken with the dramas of the French Revolution, and he was delighted they appeared to appreciate the dangers posed by any kind of zealous purists. He had also finished grading his U.S. history class term papers and was pleased with how relatively well most read. Nor had there been a single unpleasant encounter with students, colleagues, or any of the dreaded educrats, administrators. It had been just the kind of week to put him in an ideal frame of mind to hopefully make a fun weekend. He and sweet old Mrs. Turner waved at each other as he turned into his neighborhood, a middle-class mix of homes with no consistency of architecture. The autopilot ritual was repeated several times with other residents working in their yards as he made his way home. Easy boy, he laughed as General Longstreet tried to climb his leg upon entering the front door. Elton never failed to smile as the big fellow never failed to greet him with the same excited joy. But he soon realized Longstreet's enthusiasm was likely heightened by an overdue need to relieve himself since it was now 6.40. So Elton led him into the backyard and started to heat up supper in the microwave oven. He had not been in the kitchen five minutes before hearing Longstreet bark with an urgency he had not heard before. What was unusual was the barks were punctuated by a strange low growl. Elton had only heard once before when Longstreet spotted a water moccasin on a fishing trip. Even stranger, the barks and growls were occasionally interrupted by a crying whimper. Elton had rarely heard and never amidst barks and growls. So he stuck his head out the sliding glass door to see what the matter was. But now he heard other dogs barking too, and in what sounded like a borderline hysterical tone. Suddenly, his house lights went out, and the Count Basie record he had put on stopped. Dead gummit, he uttered. Without the music, he noticed Longstreet's barking had grown more intense. Going outside to confirm the neighbors had lost power too, he realized their dog's barking had ratcheted up as well, 
Only now it sounded as if every canine in the county was in an uproar. With Twilight taking hold and hoping Longstreet would shut up in the house if distracted by a meal with the curtains drawn, Elton called him inside, except his dog ignored him. Thinking perhaps the general did not hear his calls for all the barking, he went out in the yard to lead him back inside. But Longstreet was singularly intent on warning away whatever had alarmed him. Only when Elton pulled him by his collar did he finally, grudgingly, return to the house, albeit with many parting barks, grunts, growls, and cries along the way. Back inside, Elton tried to calm his dog, who was now crouched on the carpet, staring intently at the closed curtains while whining softly. What's wrong, boy? You're a general. You've got nothing to fear. Settle down, big fella. But even with his favorite bowl of food placed before him, Longstreet remained fixed on something beyond the curtains, not even looking at the meal. Never having seen such behavior, Elton stared at him before turning toward the curtains himself. Now dark outside, he noticed a faint glow not seen before. This was odd, since behind his home stood woods for a great many acres crowded with pines, oaks, and dogwoods. He drew back the curtain to confirm a distinct light emanating from somewhere deep in the forest. Unable to discern its shape or form, he strained at what the source could be amidst so many trees and thick brush. The one time he walked through the wilderness had revealed no roads or trails within it. There were a few small clearings, but no access to them except by walking. Could a neighbor? be traversing the woods with a flashlight to see what upset the dogs? But he had never seen anyone go into that thicket. Indeed, he liked how most of his neighbors were quiet retirees. They regularly walked the neighborhood sidewalks, but would not venture beyond their backyard fences. Besides, the light was like a large bright cloud ensconced somewhere way back in the forest emanating far too much light for a flashlight. Standing by the large glass door, he noticed how Longstreet was whining louder and emitting sounds Elton had not heard before. Looking back toward the trees, it seemed the light was becoming more intense. Perhaps that was just due to it now being nightfall, but he was not sure. With no television or musical distractions, not caring to read by flashlight, and satisfied his dog had relieved himself outside and was now safely inside with plenty of food, Elton focused on the strange illumination. He forgot how hungry he was and decided to investigate this mystery in the wood. So he grabbed a flashlight and started for the door. But as soon as he slid it open, Longstreet barked and leapt on his leg. Never had Elton seen him display such a desperate yearning for his master to stay. Yet when given the chance to join him outside, his canine friend refused. When Elton turned to step on the back patio, Longstreet's teeth grabbed the bottom of his pants leg to try to pull him back inside. Whoa, boy, what's wrong with you? Back off, it's all right. Longstreet had never acted anything like this. When Elton finally jerked his pants leg loose, 
to quickly close the door behind him, he was more stunned than angered to see part of the fabric was gone. He chose to be grateful his dog had not bitten him, but instead sought to protect him. Yet the thought of taking Longstreet in his present state on a leash into the forest did not seem wise. At this point, his canine buddy would not go anyway. So Elton went toward the woods on his own, able to hear Longstreet wailing in the house. He climbed over the back fence, turned on the flashlight, and followed in the direction of the distant luster. He briefly looked back toward the neighborhood to see if anyone else was venturing outside to seek out the light, but found no company. Instead, he saw what appeared to be the glow of candles in homes, and there was still a cacophony of barks echoing throughout the subdivision. Peering ahead into the forest, he realized its trees were too thick to navigate very fast, and his flashlight failed to find any undiscovered trail. The glow in the distance was becoming brighter, but remained stubbornly far away. As the neighborhood barking grew more muffled, he began to feel a strange quiet creeping over him. In fact, when he could no longer hear the dogs, he listened for the sounds of the forest. But there was none. He heard not one cricket chirping or a single owl hooting, nor did he hear any bullfrog. So he just listened and felt his stomach muscles slowly tighten with the realization he was completely enveloped by silence. Turning back toward the glare, he saw it had grown not only brighter, but was giving off pulsating waves of light. He became transfixed by this throbbing, gleaming glow. Moving toward it, he tried to guess what it was. Could some folks have decided to camp in one of the least developed areas of the county? Might this just be a large group of campers in a clearing with several campfires or a generator producing extremely bright light? Dear Lord, please don't let it be a bunch of students from the school, particularly for many of my classes, he thought. How embarrassing if they saw Mr. Peabody emerge from the trees and what a nightmare if they were drinking or smoking dope. He could well imagine wild rumors flying around the school come Monday about that young history teacher hanging out with his partying students. That had career-altering implications. However, something told him there were no students ahead, since he heard no loud music or teenage laughs or squeals. Still, what was it? He realized the light was not only becoming more intense, but larger. What had been a distant glow was now much wider and taller in scope, and he thought he heard a dull hum now. In fact, as the glittering white light got closer, he realized the sounds of leaves and pine straw below his feet could barely be heard for the growing buzz that appeared to be produced by whatever was making the light. Staring ahead, he could see an open space where the light was most intense. Brilliantly bright beams of throbbing light now cut between the trees. So vivid was the light that even the backsides of the trees were illuminated. 
Elton also saw that despite all the trees still between himself and the light, his clothes were now lit up. In fact, they were glowing like the time he took his school's Presbyterian club students to the bowling alley for cosmic bowling. The place had been lit only by strobe lights, which caused lightly colored patches of clothing to glimmer in the dark. Yet his clothes were gleaming much more intensely now, and he was not even wearing white. He also began to feel warmer. Checking his watch, he saw it had stopped at 6.54, even though he felt sure it had to be well after seven. How could an electric power outage have done that? It was then he felt a big flock of butterflies flutter in his gut as they did at times of deep dread. The first time that evening, he felt fear. With the light just beyond the trees ahead, Alton had no reference for what emerged before him. The clearing contained about 100 square acres and was entirely aglow with the brightest white light he had ever seen. His entire field of vision was consumed by the feverish light, now accompanied by a roaring chorus of hums at a deafening decibel. Mighty tempted to run away, he was still determined to see what this was before setting a speed record for exiting a forest. Slowly making his way to the last tree before the opening, he gripped it tightly with his head buried behind it. He saw how incredibly lit up the whole area was and well into the forest. Not understanding why, he gradually moved into the light. There had to be a reasonable explanation for this, he kept telling himself. Otherwise, nothing made sense. Moving a few steps into the cauldron of light, he had to squint. Looking down, even the ground was ablaze in white, and the roar was completely upon him. He felt as if he were drowning in a pool of pure light and sound. He wanted to run back into the woods, but felt frozen and disoriented. His heart pounded like a deck of cards being shuffled. Was he risking a heart attack? It was then he noticed the light turning colors in places, flashes of deep red, blue, yellow, orange, purple, and green streaked around him. He felt as if he were trapped in a kaleidoscope of sheer light surrounded by a wall of noise. Time appeared stuck, and he feared he had been sucked into some kind of time-space wormhole. He blinked and dared to look into the light, but only saw endless waves of acutely white light freckled with vivid colors. He could neither move forward nor backward. He could not move at all. It was as if he were stuck in a continuum of light without end in all directions. Never had he felt so totally trapped and absolutely alone. Shaking and struggling to breathe, he realized he had reached a state of panic. Was this some type of religious experience? Could there be angels or the wheels of Ezekiel here? Yet he felt nothing but terror 
and could not believe the God he worshiped at First Presbyterian Church had anything to do with this. Was this something evil? The gems of colored light looked celestial. He detected no heavenly vibes and hardly saw this as a friendly welcome. Yet he had sought out the light, not the reverse, and nothing or no one had touched him in anger. Had he died? Was he transitioning to another world? If so, why was it taking so long? Please, dear God, just send me to heaven or hell, he pleaded. Anything but this. Or had he already entered hell? Was this an alien spacecraft? A bona fide unidentified flying object from another planet? Maybe, but where was the ship? And where were the proverbial little green men? And where was anyone? How could it be of the 20,000 residents of Johnston County, only one Elton Peabody had seen or heard this thing and sought it out? Where was everybody? Unable to move and captured by a fear more ferocious than any he had ever felt. He could barely think. Words would not come aloud or even in his mind. Think of something. He kept telling himself, he started yelling, but heard nothing above the din of noise and could no longer tell if he was making sounds. It was then he collapsed to his knees and clasped his hands to his bowed head. He fervently, desperately wanted to pray, but could not even recall the Lord's prayer. He tried to just think of God and something to say. Frightened beyond words, he finally whispered, Please, dear God, please help me. I'm so sorry for all my sins. Please save me. Perceiving he could not get any more afraid, he resigned himself to his fate. Without consciously deciding to do so, he found himself on the ground in a fetal ball, hugging his knees and shaking with his eyes shut tight. Light still pierced his eyelid. At one point, he closed his eyes as firmly as he could and then opened them wide to wake up from a nightmare as he had done so often before. But opening his eyes only caused them to immediately close again, as if stabbed by the merciless light. And no matter how hard he pressed his hands over his ears, his head sounded like an echo chamber of jet engines. Having lost the capacity to reason, his mind clung fiercely to a blessed refuge of nothingness, a commitment to ride this ear-shattering light storm out and just accept whatever happened. He did not know if he went to sleep, passed out, or hallucinated. He had no sense of how long he was feverishly holding himself. He just shook and rocked back and forth in a steady rhythm, push against the fear and try to prevent thought. All right, that was Douglas Young reading a sample chapter from his debut novel, Deep in the Forest. And I, you know, and I told you, didn't I? He does a fantastic reading. I mean, I was really pulled in, kind of like that light was pulling in the character. Hey, click that link in the show notes to find more from Douglas. And uh, don't forget to find and follow him in the in those links you can reach out to his email as well to contact him 
Go in there as well to find and follow for all of our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next time when I'm back with a new author, a new book, and an all-new sample chapter. Thanks, everyone. Take care. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. Network.